0: Page 7 of your order of worship as we uh, conclude our series in Isaiah for Advent. This week in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All men are like grass, their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we come to you with thanksgiving. In so many ways, this is always the best week of the year. We are surrounded by those we love, we celebrate, We feast, we gather on Friday evening for Christmas Eve and then celebrate together on Christmas morning as families and friends. Lord, this is truly a special time, but we also are very aware that the curse of Genesis 3 doesn't take a week off, that we gather this morning still full of doubts and fears, burdened by pains, Lord, living with regrets and ongoing struggles with sins and addictions, Lord, we gather this week, just like every week, as a weary people needing to hear from our God, and so would you speak as only you can speak, or we need the message that you indeed are are our defender, that you love us. That what harms us angers you. And so would you come and give us that vision this morning. Help me to be faithful to your word. Forgive me where I failed. Don't hold that against your people. But empower me by your spirit to preach as I should in a way that honors you and blesses those who have gathered. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, uh, if you've been with us for Advent, we've been exploring the Messiah prophecies from the book of Isaiah we've seen the promise of a Messiah unto us, a Messiah with us, and then today we conclude with a Messiah who is for us. What this means is that the Messiah has come to defend us, to fight for us, to subdue all his and our enemies, as the catechism states, the reason I'm saying that is I want to be honest with you up front that this is not a conventional Advent message. I plan to tell a Christmas story of judgment and vengeance. And I say that recognizing that the idea of God's judgment has become controversial at best or even downright abhorrent to our modern sensibilities but what we need to understand is that only those who live privileged and comfortable lives see it that way. Only a privileged few in this world struggle with the notion of God's righteous judgment. So, on Friday, we're going to gather safely and freely in the sanctuary, surrounded by family and friends and a loving community. We will participate in nostalgic rituals that will invoke the warmest feelings of comfort and joy. We're going to retire to homes festively decorated with family traditions to perform. Children will wake up to unwrap their bounty while parents and grandparents uh, experience revel in vicarious joy. Indeed, if things go as they normally do, the only hardship I have before me This week is assembling toys late in the evening, cursing toys late in the evening, and then my kids waking me up at an hour so early I'm not sure I'm a Christian. From that vantage point, where that's the only thing I have before me of inconvenience this week, the idea of God's vengeance seems strange, controversial, even offensive. But let's step outside comfortable reality for a moment. I read an article this week about what it's like for Christians to celebrate Christmas in other parts of the world. I want to read a little bit from that. Quote, in Iran, Christmas is a time of increased scrutiny and persecution. Christians gathering in secret home home house churches to sing and celebrate invariably leads to violent arrests, false accusations, and lengthy imprisonments. In Nigeria and other African countries, late-night Christmas Eve incursions and massacres in Christian communities have inspired survivors to say, we are so thankful when we wake up in the morning to find that the Lord has kept us to see another day. In China, Christians will celebrate Christmas amid recent crackdowns on churches, as well as high-tech surveillance, arrests, and disappearances of church leaders and others caught sharing their faith. American Christians... Must continually remind ourselves that those experiences are the normative experiences for Christians throughout history. And from their vantage point, the news of God's coming righteous judgment is not only plausible, it is longed for. MLK said that the only reason he could lead a nonviolent movement is because he truly believed vengeance belongs to the Lord. It was not his task to repay evil for evil, but to trust that God would not forget the evil done to him and would, in the end, make every wrong right according to his righteous judgments. This is the often overlooked promise of Advent, but it is what is before us here in Isaiah 11 this morning. We're going to see the promise of a Messiah for us and then the advent of the Messiah for us. First, let's look at the promise. Verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. So Jesse is, of course, King David's father. And King David, of course, is the most famous king of Israel. And most significantly, it was David with whom God made a covenant. And God's promise was that from David would come a king whose kingdom would reign over all. God would establish this king's throne forever, and of the increase of this king's government and of peace, there would be no end. In short, from David would come the king of all kings whose reign would bring peace throughout all the earth. And yet when you read, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, it's okay if you're not, but if you're familiar with it, when you read that story, the saga of Israel's kings after David, it would seem that that promise given at the beginning of the kingship is forgotten. With almost no exceptions, the Old Testament kings were horrible kings with equally horrible kingdoms. The epic of Israel's kingship is filled with violence, not peace, idolatry, Not worship, wickedness, not justice, and defeat, not victory. And Isaiah is prophesying just before it all comes to a head, right before defeat and exile, seemingly bringing an end to God's kings and kingdom. Certainly not the story that God promised to David. But from the ruins, from the kingdom ruins, comes a glimmer of prophetic hope. Isaiah says, from the stump of Jesse, and he's conceding that the promise has been worn down to a barren stump, almost gone. But from the stump of Jesse, there shall sprout forth a shoot, a a sign of life from the rubble of Israel's history will emerge. And this branch shall bear fruit. And when Isaiah says fruit, boy, does he mean fruit. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So God's people for who so long have suffered under unwise and foolish kings will finally be led by wisdom and understanding. Continue on, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So foolish kings who have no fear of God will will be replaced by knowledge and fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Meaning finally justice, finally equity. No longer partiality and prejudice, no longer persuaded by power and flattery and manipulative ploys, only by righteousness will this king rule. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The wicked will finally pay. The wicked will pay. The abuser, the exploiter, the oppressor, the violent, the merciless, the racist and the rapist, the pornographer and the trafficker, the persecutor and murderer, the rod of the Messiah's judgment is coming for the wicked. Merry Christmas. I mean that. Merry Christmas, injustice does not have the final say. This is the news God's people have been pining for. This is what creation has been pining for. No longer will the wicked be in charge. The shoot from Jesse's tree shall usurp their seat of authority and finally righteousness will be in charge of the planet. And when that comes to pass, and make no mistake, it shall come to pass. When that comes to pass, and evil and injustice are no more, Isaiah says, behold, a world made right. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb." He's going to use ironic imagery here to show us that there will literally be nothing left to fear when this king is done. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion with the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full, not of injustice, not of evil, not of wickedness, not of exploitation and oppression. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise. A messianic king is coming for us to purge the world of evil, make this crooked world right once again, and so profound will be his righteous shalom, the wolf and lamb, child and cobra will play together with nothing to fear. That's a promise, a breathtaking promise. Let's see it come to pass. Let's turn now to fulfillment, the advent of a Messiah for us. Let's return to our New Testament reading again, and I want us to listen to it through the lens of God's promise to David, this Davidic covenant we spoke of. In of In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Luke is sure to note that Joseph is from the line of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, "'Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you.'" She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now listen to this announcement from the angel through the Davidic line lens. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Could it be? Could it be that this child of the virgin is the long-awaited shoot from Jesse Stump? Could it be that the righteous defender of God's people has come? The answer is a complicated one. On one hand, this Jesus did not shy away one bit from the promise given at his birth. For example, to commence his ministry, Jesus walked into a synagogue. He opens a scroll from the prophet Isaiah that we've been studying, and he quotes from Isaiah 61, a passage similar to our passage in Isaiah 11. So Jesus walks in, opens the scroll, and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So Isaiah 11 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Here, quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then, Jesus says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. And yet... And Will pointed this out when he preached on Isaiah 61 a few weeks ago. He stops the reading just before Isaiah 61 starts to sound a lot like Isaiah 11. This imagery of justice and vengeance. So Jesus ends with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the next phrase is, and the day of of vengeance of our God. So why did Jesus choose the prophecy of Isaiah 61 instead of Isaiah 11? To announce his arrival. And even within Isaiah 61, why did he stop before he got to the vengeance of God? It's that complicated question that would explain the complicated relationship between the Messiah and those who longed for the Messiah's coming. He never shied away from his messianic identity, and yet, His ministry looked nothing like the Messiah they expected. Where was the judgment and vengeance? Where was the rod that would strike down the wicked? I thought the promises that the king from Jesse Stump would come to defend us from our enemies and purge the world of wickedness. Well, this this seemingly messianic contradiction is resolved with one question. How do you view yourself? The proud who thought surely the Messiah would come to defend me against my enemies, they were the ones who rejected Jesus because that's not what he did. But the humble who viewed themselves as their own worst enemy loved the Messiah because he came to defend them against the enemy within. The best example of this is found in a parable that Jesus told. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. People who viewed themselves that way, I'm righteous, they're bad, wanted and expected a Messiah who would come and save them from all those bad people that they are not like. I thank God I'm not like them, so save me, Messiah, from them. Now continue with the parable. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. People who viewed themselves that way wanted a Messiah that would save them from themselves. Save me, Messiah, for I am a sinner. Simply put... The shoot of Jesse has come to do exactly what was promised. The Messiah has indeed come to defend us from evil. Question of all questions on a most fundamental level, where do you view the location of evil? The proud view it in others. The humble view it in themselves. If you want a king to save you from others' evil, he will disappoint you. If you want a king to save you from your evil, he will be for you everything you had ever hoped for. And this stark contrast comes to a head when Rome crucifies the Messiah. Those who wanted a Messiah to come eradicate their enemies could never conceive of a Messiah crucified by their greatest enemy, their pagan Roman oppressors. But those who want a Messiah to eradicate the enemy within, see him hanging from a Roman cross as the Messiah's most kingly act. For the king has taken the place of his subjects in order to bury their evil in the grave. In his defeat, our evil is defeated. But we're not done just yet. And this is very important. Okay, but what about that blessed vision of wolf and lamb, child and cobra playing together? Where is this vision of righteous peace when the king has purged the world of evil? I get that it starts with me. First and foremost, I need the king to defend me from the evil within. Yes, this is true. And yet, what about the very real injustice, harm, abuse, oppression, persecution that remains in our world? Thank you, Jesus, for delivering me from my sins, but I long for the world to be delivered from its sins. Again, as I said in my opening this is the perspective of those who are not afforded such a privileged and comfortable life as we are. They're longing for that type of justice to come. Well, my answer to that question is who said the Messiah is done with this world? His first advent inaugurated the year of the Lord's favor, where the Messiah promises to cleanse us from our sins. But take heart or take heed. His second advent will bring the Lord's vengeance, where the Messiah will cleanse this world from sins. I love the lyrical, I love the lyrical move in the hymn that we sang before my sermon. It says the Christmas bells signal the good news of peace on earth, but then it recognizes and laments this has not come to pass. Let me read it again for us. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks this song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then listen to this conclusion and Stephen led it masterfully as he, the music picked up and it, and it got triumphant. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Friends, God is not dead and he does not sleep. The Messiah did not just come to die. He came to rise and ascend and return again. And upon his second advent, the wrong shall fail and the right will prevail. And finally, finally peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, if I may, um, by way of application, two concluding words for us. I would like to speak first to my friends who are here listening or online who um, would not call themselves follower followers of the Messiah that we believe came into the world at Christmas. Here's what I would humbly ask you to consider. I see within you, I know there is within you a noble sense of justice. When you are harmed, when those, that you are, that, when those that you love are harmed, you rightly say that should not be. That's wrong. And I would suggest that you want a God who agrees with you there. A God of justice who will not allow injustice to prevail, but will make things right in the end for you. And beyond your personal experiences and stories, you look broadly at a world full of injustice and evil, and you rightly say that should not be. That is wrong. And I would suggest you want a God who agrees with you there, a God of justice who will rid this world of all injustice. But my humble caution to you is that you can't want justice for wrongs against you, wrongs against those you love, and wrongs in this unjust world. You can't want justice while also demanding you be exempt from that same justice. It can't work that way, meaning you can't want a God who deals with evil in this world and then ask that God ignore the evil you have done. What if in your demand for justice, you are actually condemning yourself? That's my concern for you, but here's my offer to you, the year of the Lord's favor. The Messiah has come. And before he returns to judge the world, he holds out to you the blessed invitation to escape his coming judgment. I plead with you to receive his mercy before you yourself receive the very judgment that you have demanded upon this world. Now, my word to the followers of this Messiah. Here's my concern for you. Because we fail to truly accept that the first advent is true for us, we miss out on the promise of his second advent for us. Let me state that more plainly. The problem with perpetually fearing that God is against us is that we miss out on the promise that actually God is truly for us. Because we perpetually wonder, we suspect that God is our condemner, we never get to bask in the truth that God is actually our defender. Christian, God is not against you. He is for you. God was against his son so that he can be for you. So would you just enjoy that almighty God is on your side and no evil will befall you in the end. Oh, how he loves you. And because he loves you, he is angry when what he loves is harmed. Consider not your sins which are gone at Calvary. Consider the ways you have been sinned against. Consider the abuse you suffered at the hands of evil people. Consider the slander against you and the lies told about you. Consider the marginalization and mocking that you have endured in this world. Consider the exploitation and manipulation you have suffered. Consider the evil against you. Beloved, God's mad at that, not you. He loves your humble and contrite spirit when it comes to your sins. He loves that your sins trouble you and and you absolutely should continue to apologize and repent. But just know that these are the ones the Messiah has come to save and defend. So hold fast. Do not repay evil for evil. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, knowing with surety that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Make no mistake, the Messiah is returning. This time not in a humble manger, but in clouds of glory on a white stallion to execute righteous judgment on this crooked world. But brothers and sisters, you should not fear that day. You should long for that day. For he returns, not to condemn you, but to defend you. Let me pray. Oh God, our defender, lift lift our heads high. I pray for those to whom you extend mercy, that they would run to your mercy. And for those of us who cling to your mercy, may we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you do not condemn us, you defend us, and you will make all things right in the end. Until that day, and we pray for that day that you would return and wipe every tear from every eye and make all things new. Until that day, Lord, we hold fast to the promise of Advent, that you are coming And you are coming to defend those you love. Use this meal, Lord, to strengthen that faith within us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.